the destruction of Jerusalem and the second temple, it really appeared as if Israel had been swept into the dustbin of history in 70 AD. However, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about Israel's rebirth, and yesterday, May 14th, Israel celebrated her 75th birthday. Well, we will discuss this most recognizable prophecy in the last 2,000 years on today's edition of The End Time Show. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dave Robbins with End Time Ministries. Thank you so much for joining me on this edition of The End Time Show. Now, it's a very fitting program today because tomorrow, most of you know that Doug Norvell, his wife Tina, a, another guy that works with us here at End Time, Chris Wilson and his wife um, Brenda, and then my wife Jana and I will be leaving for Israel And we won't be back here until the 28th of May. And I would ask that you all would pray with us and for us for this trip because it's much more than just the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives and the Upper Room and the Tomb and Golgotha and the Sea of Galilee and all of the other places that we go to, the Kidron Valley, the Plain of Megiddo where the Battle of Armageddon is going to originate. It's much more than that. For me, I've been there, wow, man, I I honestly don't remember how many times, probably 15 times. But of all the times I've been, the first time I went was all the way back in 1999. I've been, I don't know how many times since, but to me, from the first time I've went until now, it was the spiritual experiences that everybody, some people, many people, experienced a true move of the Holy Spirit for the absolute first time in their life. And I've been there to witness it and be be a part of it. Many times praying with them as they got baptized. And I mean, people's lives were changed from that point onward because of a spiritual experience. A lot of people have been to church. They might have read their Bible. They might have went through a Sunday school class when they were young or something like that. But they've never felt the true presence of the Holy Ghost as it came on them. And so, I've seen that happen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in Israel. We take people from all over the place. We have people meet us from other nations to come on our trips. And I've seen them receive a true experience from the Lord, a spiritual experience. And wow, Uh, that's what the trip is all about to me. Now, yes, we will see all the spots, and all the spots are awesome. Standing on the Temple Mount, things you've read about for your entire life in the Bible, and now you get to go experience it. You get to stand there, the Mount of Olives, in different places. But for me, it's the spiritual experience and preparing people for heaven and a lot of different things. But I want you, I would ask that you pray with us and for us for our trip we leave in the morning. We'll be back at the end of the month, and we're going to have a lot of different things happen. We're going to have our Israeli, if we can work it out, we're going to have the Israeli missionary come and talk to the group uh, while we're there to show us what boots on the ground, what's going on in Israel, how does all this work, what's going on with the college. I mean, it's going to be an awesome trip. 
hopefully, if you haven't, if you're not, haven't been with us, or you're not going with us this time, you'd be able to go with us in the future. So, with that said, um, Israel celebrating her 75th anniversary yesterday, May 14th, started in 1948. Well, all Israel news that many people are reporting the miracle nation. Uh, a writer, I think his name is Joel Rosenberg, wrote an article, 75 Reasons Why I Love Israel as she turns 75. I'll give you a few of them, and then we'll dive off into the story. Because this is the most recognizable prophecy in the last 2,000 years, you understand. There's not a more recognizable prophecy that I could talk about. Why do we love Israel so much? Well, the rebirth of the modern state of Israel on May 14, 1948, it was one of the greatest miracles in the history of mankind and the fulfillment of an ancient biblical prophecy that most people in the world thought were just fairy tales or lies or uh, just a, a myth and that, oh, they will, they will never come true. That Bible's just a myth, right? No, it's not. Ezekiel prophesied specifically about what they're celebrating right now. And he did it almost 2,500 years ago. You say, oh, Dave, there's no way. That Bible's a myth. Well, I'm going to prove to you today that it's not. The very existence of Israel today and the survival of the Jewish people throughout human history with so many people trying to destroy and annihilate them is living proof of the existence of God, number one, and the Bible as His holy word. You'll see that before I get done today. Of course, the Messiah. Why do we love Israel so much? The Messiah, Jesus, was a Jewish man. He was from Israel. And look at all the four accounts in the Gospels in the New Testament. They tell the life, the teachings, the death, the burial, the resurrection of, of one man, Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns to establish His kingdom on earth for the uh, 1,000 year millennial reign, He's going to come to Israel in Jerusalem. He's going to plant His feet on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4 And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. I will stand there, I think it's Thursday morning. I'll be standing on the Mount of Olives where the Lord ascended from in Acts chapter 1 and where He's coming back to and plant His feet there, Zechariah chapter 14. Now folks, these are Bible prophecies. They were prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years, sometimes thousands of years before they come to pass. But they've all come to pass and they all will come to pass. Israel's the only country in the Middle East where the number of Christians is increasing. The Christian population grew by 2% in 2021, and Christians make up about 1.9% of the population of Israel. Approximately 50% of all tourists uh, that go, make it go to Israel are Christians. You know, one day the Bible tells us that all Israel is going to be saved. Romans 11, 25 and 26, the Bible says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and that's at the second coming of Jesus Christ, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So, pretty important prophecy, isn't it? Now, the prophesied nation of Israel, let's talk about that. Because 
I can talk about the modern-day nation, and yes, it's all wonderful and great, and it's beautiful, and they've made the desert blossom as a rose. That's another prophecy. But I want to get specific. What does the Bible say about Israel? Why do we celebrate it so much? Why is it this most recognizable prophecy? Because it absolutely lets us know we are in the end time. You cannot deny, unless you just are completely closed, blinding yourself, closing your own eyes that Israel is a very prophetic uh, occurrence, and we're watching it. It's still happening today, so very, very important. We'll talk about it in great detail uh, when we get back from the break, and I'll be there in just a few days. They that understand what is taking place will instruct many. Except a man is born again, he can enter or see the kingdom of God. I don't care what label you've been given or what label you've given yourself, you are essential. You still matter. This is a journey, and when we get to the other side of that, that's where our prize is, that's where our reward is. End time is not going anywhere. Satan and the elites of this world don't want you to understand the timeline leading to the second coming of Jesus. You can pinpoint where we are in the end time. Understand how you fit in and be filled with hope in God's plan by watching the future according to Bible prophecy. Go to intime.com slash future or call 800 intime. That's 800-363-8463. What if you could understand Bible prophecy? Dave Robbins, the host of the End Time Show's TV and radio programs, is holding a free prophecy conference near you. Gain peace and understanding about what the Bible says concerning end time prophecy. Call 1 800 End Time or go to endtime.com slash events to see when Dave will be in a location near you. You know, everyone, I know that we talk about Israel all the time. We talk about Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and all these different things. But why, why is it so important? I mean, I live in Dallas. Why is it so important that we talk about these all the time? I mean, it's just a little old insignificant nation over there the size of um, what, like maybe New Jersey? Think about it. Very small. You can set... I think I figured it up one time. I think it was eight or ten Israels in, in the state of Texas. Very small. Why do we focus on it a lot? Well, there are more prophecies about the nation of Israel than any other nation. Israel has a, a, a God-given destiny for that nation. She's a chosen nation. Why do we take so many tours there? Because it's the apple of God's eye. Now you say, well, what about America? Hey, God... God Loves America, 
and Americans as well. He really does. The Bible says God has no respect of persons. But for thousands of years now, God has had his eye on Israel, and especially Jerusalem. And that's never going to go away. And, you know, again, it's, this, it's just a little, little nation that makes up less than one-tenth of one percent of the world's population. But it's in the news on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. I mean, they can throw a rock on the Temple Mount, and man, it just makes CNN and MSNBC and ABC. I mean, I'm, they've had rockets coming out of Gaza up towards Tel Aviv and Jerusalem over the last few days. And I'm not worried about going touring there. Not at all. Because that, that's almost a normal occurrence. It happens in Israel all the time. But to appreciate the significance of the prophecies that lie ahead of Israel, it's important to understand her history. If you don't understand the history of Israel, there is no sense in me talking to you about the conflict that's going on there right now. It's, you, you could never understand it. The, when, you, when we think about this Bible, this awesome Word of God, the first 11 chapters of this Bible, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. Genesis, the beginning. The first 11 chapters of the Bible is devoted to 2,000 years of human history. Think about that. Just the first 11 chapters. But when one man named Abraham arrives on the scene, God throws the brakes on and says, Whoa, whoa, stop the presses here. I'm going to spend some time on one man. And the next 12 chapters of the Bible are spent on the life of this one man, Abraham. So it indicates how important Abraham was in the plan for all of humanity, doesn't it? Abraham became the father of the physical people of God, the Jews, and the father of the spiritual people of God, the church. So Abraham's a pretty important gentleman, isn't he? For you and me, the church, how did he affect me in 2023? What's Abraham? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. What's he got to do with me? Well, we're going to talk about that today because you need to know. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said unto Abraham, Abraham, get you out of your country. He was down in Iraq at this point. Abraham, get out of your country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. I want you to go into a land that I'm going to show you and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make thy name great and thou wilt be a blessing to others. I'm going to bless them that bless you. And this is very important because this still applies today. Abraham, I'm going to bless them that bless you and I'm going to curse them that curse you. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, Abraham at that point was called Abram until God changed his name. And this is God's call to Abraham or Abram. He was called to come to go, go, go to the promised land. I'm, the land that I will show you. The land known today as the nation of Israel. This is a very godly thing. If you're God conscious at all, you've got to... Love and support the nation of Israel. All of this is a God thing, everybody. This is not just some geopolitical situation that was, you know, in the history book somewhere that somebody come up with. No, this is a God thing. If you're God conscious, then you're conscious of Israel. So, from this one man, every family on the earth would be blessed. He would be a, 
a, a blessing and any who blessed him, they would be blessed. But any who cursed him, they would be cursed. Now, I don't support Israel because it's a financial, uh, a, a financial investment for me. But we do support Israel, and God has blessed us. And I believe it goes all the way back to these verses here. The promise is still applicable to the offspring of Abraham, and that's the nation of Israel today. So, God gave Abraham two promises. The promise of the promised land, which today is Israel. And, the, and well, Israel only inhabits a very small sliver of the original promised land, but they'll get that all back in the millennial reign. Number two, God promised the, um, Abraham the, a promised seed. Singular, a promised seed. Okay, Genesis chapter 15 tells us about the promised land. Back in Genesis uh, 15, 12, the Bible says, And when the sun was going down, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham. I'm sorry, it was, uh, at that point it was Abraham, Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. In previous verses, God told Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. And when Abraham did that, darkness came over him and he fell into this trance. So that brings us to Genesis 15, 17, 18. The Bible says, And it come to pass that when the sun went down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces of this sacrifice. And in the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Abraham, unto thy seed have I given this land, and from the river of Egypt, all the way down in Egypt, all the way up to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, you can see today, if you were to look at a map, Israel only inhabits just a very small, I mean just a sliver along the Mediterranean Sea of the entire promised land. It should go way down in Egypt, all the way up into the river Euphrates, up in Syria, and way over into the Jordan region. But because the United Nations is such a wonderful organization, they only have a small sliver today. And, uh, but they're going to get it all back. Mark my words. You can mark the Bible's words. Let's say that. Much more reliable. So God made this unbreakable covenant with Abram. He had journeyed to the promised land, uh, the land of Israel. So in, in verse 18, God laid out the rough boundaries of the promised land, uh, their, their homeland, and it was from the river of Egypt up to the great river Euphrates. Israel has never really had all of this land except for during one era, and that's the era of David and Solomon's reign. And um, that's uh, during their reigns, that's when Israel's boundaries covered the area from the river of Egypt in the south to the Euphrates River in the north. And though Israel does not have all this land today, the promise is still just as valid as it has ever been. These were everlasting promises. Now, they, were, they, they fell into sin, they had to be exiled, and all kinds of things happened. But we're watching this prophecy occur over time. It's a fulfillment. We're watching the ongoing fulfillment of this prophecy right now. In Genesis 17, 19, it talks about a promised seed, singular. Uh, it says, um, and God said, Sarah, uh, Ab- Abram, Sarah thy wife, is going to bear you a son, indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, just like I've got in a covenant with you. I'm going to establish that covenant with 
Isaac, this is very important, not Ishmael, Isaac, and for an everlasting covenant, even two, three, four thousand years from now, and with his seed after him. Well, at this time, Abraham was, think of it now, a hundred years old, and Sarah was 90. So according to Scripture, Sarah had already gone through the change of life. So, uh, baby coming? No, it's not going to happen. Not unless it's a miracle from God. Well, for this promise to be fulfilled, it's going to be a supernatural promise as it's going to be as supernatural as the virgin birth because she was past the point of ever even thinking about having a child. And it's going to bring forth this promised seed God is telling Abraham about. It's very miraculous. Abraham and Sarah didn't believe. So this promise was fulfilled as God said it would. I shouldn't say they didn't believe. I should say that they questioned. They thought, oh, yeah, my Lord, Sarah's 90. I'm 100. Come on. Okay? Well, but the promise is fulfilled just as God said it would. Sarah became pregnant. And now I'm leaving out several. There's no way I got time to do the whole story today. But Sarah did become pregnant. The baby was born and they named him Isaac. Abraham and Sarah had no doubt that Isaac was a special child because of, number one, their age. God Almighty told them they were going to have a child. I mean, it's it's a no-brainer, right? So it was an incredible event. God was working His plan in the earth. God knew that at this point that there will be a little nation on the Mediterranean Sea over there in 2023. God knew that all the way back when He was talking to Abraham and Sarah. However, God needed to uh, ascertain the loyalty and faithfulness of Abraham. Okay, so there was a time that um, there was a time a time came when God needed to, to test Abraham. God was making Abraham the pivot of human history. Think about this: the father of the Jewish people and the father of the church. I mean, Abraham was the he was the pivotal man here. God wanted to make sure Abraham would prove to be loyal and faithful. So, in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Yes, Lord, here I am. And the Lord said, Take now thy son. Thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. This is very important because this mountain is going to be a very pivotal mountain in all of history, even today. I'm getting ready to stand on that mountain uh, towards the end of this week with the group of 83 that's going with us. I'm going to stand on the exact same mountain. God sent Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac. So God leads Abraham to a specific mountain called Mount Moriah. And this place is very important because a thousand years later, this is uh, during the reign of David, this mountain is going to be where the first temple would be built. And then 1,000 years later, it's going to be where the second temple, uh, it, would be, uh, it would become the, the Temple Mount. And it is still known as the Temple Mount today. And this was all part of God's plan. Now, 
When I tell you this story, imagine standing there and me telling you this story. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about going back, and I've been there I don't know how many times. But yet I'll be telling people these stories here this throughout this week and next week, and you can only imagine going to Israel with us and hearing these things. It's so awesome, and it brings the Bible to life. I mean, I don't know how you could ever go to Israel and then say, well, this book is a bunch of fairy tales and myths. That's ridiculous to follow that. Are you? Come on. you got to be kidding me. The words of eternal life are in this book. The things I'm telling you are helping build your faith in this book, folks. This book tells the story of what we're talking about today and why that nation of Israel is in the almost in the headlines of every major news source on a daily basis. You can find something going on about Israel. So when Abraham and Isaac arrived at the, um, the top of Mount Moriah, Abraham didn't question God. He said, Isaac, come on, we're going to take a trip, buddy. So Abraham, when they got up to the top, Abraham builds this altar because he knows what he's going to do. Well, you know Isaac had to be questioning, man, you know, there's dad, we're building an altar. He's getting the sticks, he's gathering everything, and I've helped him do sacrifices before, but we didn't bring a ram up here with us or we didn't bring a goat or anything, so it's dad and me. (laughs) Imagine the situation here. So Abraham builds the altar. He binds Isaac. Now Isaac, again, he saw his dad do several sacrifices. And when he starts putting a a wrap string around or a rope around Isaac's hands, I mean, what would you think? Uh, Dad, what are you doing here? And then he places Isaac on the altar. Well, Abraham... He's doing what God wants him to do. And you know what? i got to give credit to Isaac because Isaac just laid there. I mean, think about this. What would you do if your dad did that to you? So, Abraham raised his knife over his promised son. I mean, he's fixing to plunge it into him. I mean, he loves Isaac. Beyond, Isaac's the promised child. But Isaac knew. Isaac knew he was the promised child. And and Abraham was ready to sacrifice him for God. Now, folks, I want you to know that sooner or later, God asks everyone who follows Him for the thing they love the most. He wants to know if we're going to love Him more than we love anything in this world. Genesis, that's what He's doing here to Abraham. Abraham, I'm making you a very pivotal point in all of human history. And I've got to know if you love me more than anything in this world, and folks, that's what God's going to do to all of us. Can't put anything before God. And so now you can understand, you can kind of get an idea where I'm going with all this. Why is it so important that Israel is celebrating her 75th anniversary yesterday and probably throughout this week they'll have celebrations and different things? Because... This, all of this began back with Abraham in this wonderful story, and that's, that's the results today is Israel. The symbols and prophecies within the book of Revelation have perplexed Christians and unbelievers around the world. In his final work, Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ part two, the late Irvin Baxter unlocks the mystery of the book of Revelation with in-depth analysis and commentary like you've never heard before. 
These comprehensive study tools, available for $299, will deepen your biblical understanding. Don't miss this special offer. Call 1-800-END-TIME or go to endtime.com. Hi, I'm Judy Baxter. When Irvin and I got married, we didn't realize that our calling would be a prophetic ministry. Since we started Time Ministries, there have been many times we weren't sure how we would pay the bills, but God has always provided. We started with the magazine, then went on radio and TV, and now we have the Jerusalem Prophecy College in Israel and online with End Time Plus. The mission has always been to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the End Time message. Through the years, my husband would say, we will see revival like never before in the last days. We are living in the end time now. Thank you for walking this journey with us and continuing in prayer. You are a part of the team. Thank you for your generous support. It is necessary for God's purpose. The most important thing is that you are ready when the Lord comes. Our hope is to help prepare you for that day. God bless you and we love you. Isn't this a magnificent story? I mean, we're living through the fulfillment of the prophecy. I'm, set, I'm coming up to the prophecy, but the fulfillment of that Israel, Ezekiel's prophecy, that Israel would be reborn. You say, well, when was she destroyed? Well, I'll get to that in just a moment. So in Genesis 22, 12 through 13, it records the account of this event. Um, it says, a voice of an angel spoke and said to Abraham, Hey, don't put that knife down through him. Lay not thy hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know, Abraham, that you fear God, seeing that thou hast not even withheld thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him, guess what? Just, Just a coincidence, right? A ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. I mean, come on. No, it's not a coincidence. Abraham went over, took the ram, offered him instead of his son. God was working His plan in the earth, and He knew Abraham loved him more than anything. So, Isaac lived, and he eventually married, and his twin sons were named Esau and Jacob. Esau was born first, and so he had the birthright, and the patriarchal blessing due to him as the firstborn. However, Jacob wanted the birthright. Esau, he he didn't really care about the birthright. I mean, he didn't care about spiritual things. All he cared about was, I want to go hunting and I'm this, that. You know, I'm just a man's man. I don't care about spiritual stuff. Well, you can be a manly man and still care about spiritual stuff. Don't let this old world or Satan lie to you and say, well, I mean, all Christians are wimps and this, that, and the other. No. There were men in the Bible that were manly men that were Christians and they loved God and they just chose to serve God and to go to heaven. It does not mean that you're wimpy and all this other stuff to be a Christian. A true man, it takes a true man or a true woman to be a Christian. It takes a true man of God or a true woman of God to swim upstream instead of just going downstream. Okay, Uh, I don't have a pulpit in here today, but wow. Wow, 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 wow. Okay. No, I'm not going to let society feed you guys that, that you got to be a wimpy, uh, you know, uh, societal cast out to be a Christian. No, no, no. A Christian is somebody who wants to serve God and loves God and wants to align themselves up with the Word of God. So, 
No, just because Jacob didn't do that did not mean that he was not a man, because you're going to see how he is, he really is a man before all this is over with. Okay, moving on. So throughout the Bible, the birthright represents the things of God. The Bible sees, the Bible says it, that if we seek, we will find. It also says that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will be filled. So Jacob began to plan in a, in a twisted way, because <laughs> he, he was a cheater, a supplanter. Jacob began to plan a way to get the birthright from his brother Esau. Esau was a hunter. Jacob spent his time uh, working around the house, maybe working in the garden and stuff like that. Well, one day Esau had been hunting and he came into the house and he was very weary. He was hungry. And he almost felt, I mean, he was just, he almost felt like he was going to die. Jacob was cooking pottage and Esau asked him uh, for some of the pottage. And Jacob said, told Esau, he said, well, I'll give you some of this pottage if you'll sell me your birthright. And Esau said to Jacob uh, of his birthright, now, you know what? I don't even care. It's, it's not any good to me if I'm going to die anyway. So Esau viewed his birthright as only just a, some old piece of paper. I don't even care about that. I'm a hunter. I can take care of stuff with my own two hands. Prior to that moment, though, Esau had behaved in ways that made it evident he didn't consider spiritual things very often. and Therefore, neither did he value his birthright. He took it for granted. So, consistent with how he had lived his life thus far, he allowed material and physical things to take precedent and sold his birthright from the, the, the patriarchal blessing, everything, for a bowl of pottage. I mean, what a, a horrible disaster. Well, later when their father was dying, Jacob uh, managed to steal Esau's blessing as well, the patriarchal blessing. As a result, when Esau realized he has lost both the birthright and the blessing to Jacob, Esau became angry and he set out to kill Jacob. Jacob had he, he was ran for his life. And at, he ran for his life and he ran to the house of Laban, it, who was a uh, relative of Abraham's family. While he was working for Laban, Jacob married both of Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel. Again, I don't have time to go through the whole story. A lot of you guys know this already. But um, he married his two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons who eventually became known as the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was the beginning of the nation of Israel, really. Um, after many years, Laban, uh, with Laban, he had labored for him, Jacob decided that, you know what, I'm sick of running. It's time to go back and make everything right with my family. He felt it was time to make things right, especially with Esau. So imagine going back to that. But he just, he, he's like, I can't run no more. I'm tired of it. Well, while he was on his journey to return home, Esau heard about Jacob coming home, and he goes out to meet him. So, what would you do? I mean, Jacob was afraid of Esau, this big, great hunter, and he was afraid that he might still want to kill him. So Jacob sends his wives, his children, his servants, and cattle ahead. And have you ever been in a spot like this where you've, you've just told God, look, I, I need a move of God tonight. I'm, I'm desperate. I've been there. I'm, I'm, God, I'm desperate. I, I don't want to go another day unless I have a move of your spirit in my life. I can't go another day. You, I, I'm, I'm at my wit's end. And God shows up. 
doesn't he? Well, this is where Jacob's at. He sends his wives and his children, his cattle, everything across the brook, and he stays back and he spends time on his face praying to God. And while Jacob is praying, an angel comes down and meets him. And get this, he begins to have a wrestling match. And I mean, they're tugging and and fighting on each other. I mean, he's wrestling with an angel. Come on. This is an angelic being. This is really a theophany of God is what it is. So Jacob grabbed a hold of the angel, this angelic being. And as the day began, he'd been wrestling with him all night. As the day begins to break, Jacob refused to let him go. And Jacob said, I'm not. The angel said, look, man, people are coming by here. You got to let me go. And Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm sick of being everything I've always been. I need a move of God in my life. If you bless me and to make it so that from this day forward, I'm not going to be the same cheater and supplanter and all this other stuff that I always have been, conniver, then I'll let you go. So the angel asked Jacob his name. What's your name? Jacob said, well, my name's Jacob. Jacob Jacob means cheater and supplanter, a, a conniver. Well, the angel said that, hey, your name's no longer going to be Jacob. Your name's no longer going to be the cheater or the supplanter or the conniver. But you're now going to be called Israel. Because as a prince, you have prevailed with God and with men. And so Jacob's name has changed to Israel. This is how the nation of Israel is birthed, everybody. The nation over there on the Mediterranean Sea, that's how the nation was birthed. A wrestling match between a man and God Almighty and an angelic being, a theophany of God. Okay, so there you go. That's how the nation of Israel was birthed. Well, as the nation of Israel grew, God continued to repeat His promise of the promised land and the promised seed. And if you, if you uh, go to what, Genesis 50, 24, it says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you. And Bring ye out of the land, out of the, bring you out of this land unto the land uh, which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So the promise was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Abraham, Ishmael, and that lineage. That's the Arab nations. But it was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Hence the nation of Israel today. So... As we go through here, let me put something in here because I I don't want you to forget the special mountain that God had specifically chosen for Abraham. Uh, A thousand years later, on this, let's say a timeline I'm giving here, David was born, King David. Now, he wasn't king at the time, but obviously he's going to become king. He he became a, a, a pretty prominent figure in the plan of God in Jewish history, wouldn't you think? King David kills Goliath and... Uh, purchases the, the, the threshing floor, which would later become the Temple Mount for Israel. So uh, David was the second king behind Saul of Israel. He was the man after God's own heart. Even after his fall, God considered him a man after God's own heart. He, he was the giant killer. I mean, he became a deliverer to the people of Israel. Well, over time the spiritual climate of Israel began to degenerate and God became angry at Israel. And because Israel started to sin, God had to chastise them. The Bible says, whom God loves, He chastises. If God ever chastises you today, 
just say, look, God, what, what lesson do you want me to learn here? What are you trying to take out of my life? I'm sorry, what happened? Don't take it as that, oh, God hates me now. That's, that's Satan talking. Don't, don't, let, don't be deceived by the voice of the enemy. If God's chastising you, it's because he loves you and he's trying to get you back on that straight and narrow. You veered off a little bit. Don't let Satan twist you up in a ball. Satan wants you to end up in hell where he's going. So just make sure God's, if God's trying to adjust you a little bit, get adjusted and stay on the straight and narrow. So as God moved David to number Israel, God told the kings, um, because God became angry, God wanted to get, move Israel in the right direction, so he had to come up with a plan, and he did. God told David to number the people. Well, or he moved on David to number the people. Well, God told the kings not to number the people because he wanted them to rely on him, not their numbers. But God moved on David to number the people. So David did. Well, because of God's previous instructions to not number the people, Joab, David's general, tried to convince David not to do that. But David did it anyway, and then his heart smote him because he knew that he had sinned against God. I mean, it's quite the horrible situation here, wouldn't you say? So when David inquired of the prophet Gad concerning his his mistake, uh, the prophet Gad said, Look, David, you got three choices. You can run from your enemies for three months. You can um, have seven years of famine or three days of pestilence from God. David said, you know what? I'm going to fall in the hands of God because I know that God is merciful. So David chose the three days of pestilence from God. Well, in three days, God can pour out a lot of pestilence, can he? I mean, uh, as a result, 70,000 people died. And, uh, I mean, uh, more would have died, but David was like, God, he he cried out, Lord, I want to take full responsibility for this, for what I've done. Don't, Don't put this on the people. I did this. And David asked God, he said, Lord, stop the pestilence, please. I'll do anything. Well, in 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 24, verse 18, the Bible says, And Gad, the prophet, comes back to David and says, Hey, David, here's what you're going to do to stop the plague. You go up and you rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So, David went up and bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Can you guess where that threshing floor is today? That's the Temple Mount where I will stand towards the end of this week. Now, do you see the significance of all of this in the grand scheme of things? God is laying His plan this whole time for the nation of Israel. I've been part of the End Time family from the beginning over 30 years ago when my parents, Irvin and Judy Baxter, began the ministry from the recliner in our living room. My name is Jana Robbins. I have the pleasure of connecting with our incredible partners every day. End Time is a small nonprofit that runs a high-traffic website, a daily TV and radio show, the Prophecy College in Jerusalem, and more. Although we have less than 30 team members, we are able to serve tens of millions of people each month. 
We survive on the goodness of God and donations averaging about $50. If everyone hearing this message gave $22, our financial needs would be met for the year. If you only give to one cause per month, please consider partnering with End Time to help get the message of our soon-coming King out to the world. Call us at 1-800-END-TIME to give today or go to endtime.com to become a monthly or one-time partner. Okay, everyone, let's see if we can wrap this up for the end of the program. The threshing floor that David purchases uh, belonged to Arana. That's the same place as the as Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, and where the Temple Mount is located today. And obviously, you guys know there's, there's currently a dispute over who owns the Temple Mount, right? The Muslims claim that they own it. The Jews say they own it. The, the Catholic Church sometimes say they own it, and Christianity. But according to 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, this same place where the Temple Mount is located was purchased by King David to use as a place to offer a sacrifice so God would stay the plague of Israel. Now, somewhere in somebody's filing cabinet, there's got to be a deed giving King David the Temple Mount, right? I'm just, I don't know if there's a deed or not, but I'm saying in God's eyes there is. And that's the best deed you can come up with. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, 1, Solomon, the son of David, began to build the first temple up there. Now, again, for the sake of time, I'm skipping a lot of the story. Go to Israel with us sometime and I'll fill in the gaps for you. But um, 2 Chronicles 3, 1 says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. It's where the first temple is going to stand. Where the Lord appeared unto David, his father, in the place that David had prepared, the threshing floor of Ornan. It's the same thing as the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So this is the same specific mountain where God sent Abraham to offer his sacrifice Isaac uh, a thousand years prior. In uh, 1 Kings 9, verse 1 through 3, it says, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desire, which he was uh, pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time and as he had appeared uh, to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. And I have hallowed this house, the first temple, which thou hast built, to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Now, folks, this is where I'm going to be standing in a few days, the Temple Mount. Satan, when God said, I'll put my name there, Satan said, you know what? I'm going to fight you for it every step of the way. And that's what's been happening. You wonder why they're fighting over Israel today? It's a God thing, and it's a Satan thing. They're fighting against each other. Well, God said, I'll put my name there forever. Jerusalem... Just a, a very small, insignificant city on the, in the grand scheme of things. There have been more wars, uh, about 40 wars thus far, fought over Jerusalem more than any other city on the face of the earth. Jerusalem. It's not important militarily, economic, or uh, agricultural. 
agriculturally, it, but, but every world leader has to go there. Why? Because God said he would put his name there. And it is these 35 acres where the Battle of Armageddon is going to be fought over. It's going to culminate right there. And it's the most disputed real estate on the planet. You cannot put a price on the Temple Mount. Now, let's jump forward in time to Jesus. Because I want to bring you up to modern day before we end here. In spite of the miracles that Jesus performed throughout His ministry, the Jewish people, by and large, rejected Him. Uh, the Apostle John wrote about it in John chapter 1, verse 10-11. to He said... He was speaking of Jesus. He said, He was in the world. The world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own. His own received Him not. But, in verse 12 it says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become sons of God. And, you know, the ones that were born again the day of Pentecost, you guys all know the stories. So even though the majority of them rejected Him, Jesus loved the Jewish people. He prophesied to them just before his death. This is in uh, Luke 19, 30, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 43 through 44. The Bible says, As Jesus looked over Jerusalem, he said, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave thee one stone upon another, but thou, uh, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. I was, I was God manifest in the flesh, the Messiah coming unto you, and, and you wouldn't receive me. Jesus prophesied that the temple was going to be torn down. This would be the second temple. And I left out all that story, but I simply don't have time today. But um, that the second temple would come down the pride of their nation would fall and that they would go into exile because they did not hear the voice of God and they were disobedient to God. And that prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Roman armies led by General Titus came against Jerusalem and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They burnt the temple to the ground and not one stone was left upon another. Well, this prophecy was so thoroughly fulfilled that today the Jews still do not know 100% for sure where the temple was located on the Temple Mount. Some of them say where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, but they don't know that for sure. They speculate. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD began the second exile. The first exile was after uh, was back when Daniel and the three Hebrew children and all of them were taken down into Babylonian captivity because Israel had fallen into sin. This is the beginning of the, the 70 AD was the beginning of the second exile. And God did he, what he said he was going to do. And those who persecuted and disobeyed him were driven into exile. The first exile lasted um, 70 years. The second exile lasted 1878 years. What, what, why did the second exile last so long? Because their punishment it was that extreme because they rejected the, the promise, the covenant, the, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. They didn't realize Jesus was the Messiah. Some of them did, but not, the majority didn't. He was the Savior of the world. God manifested in the flesh. They didn't see that. And God said, I came unto you and you didn't even know me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't receive me. So, what happens? Now they're 1,807 years of exile. 
Israel swept into the dustbin of history, right? Nope. Because there's a prophecy in Ezekiel 37 about the rebirth of Israel after that second exile. It says that um, God, so God took Ezekiel to a great valley, takes him in a vision to a great valley that was full of dry bones. And the Lord asked Ezekiel, he said, um, hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel said, oh, Lord, I, I, I don't have a clue. Thou knowest. And what was God showing Ezekiel here? Well, we believe that God was showing him Hitler's Holocaust. And, I mean, they sta- if you've ever been to a Holocaust museum, we're going to go to Yad Vashem in Israel, and I don't even like walking through there. But if you go through that Holocaust Museum, you can see videos. It's horrific. It is the most horrific thing you'd ever want to see. I don't even want to see it. But they stacked the bodies of these Jews up as they killed six million of them. Well, we believe Israel, he was seeing a picture of the concentration camps when the Lord asked him, Hey, Ezekiel, can these bones live? The Lord was asking Ezekiel, can this nation of Israel, he tells him, this is the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 37. This is the whole house of Israel. The Lord was asking Ezekiel, can this nation come back together? Well, Ezekiel replied that ah, he didn't know. But God told Ezekiel, you prophesied to them bones. Ezekiel prophesied. And as he did, the bones rejoined back together. And the rest of the prophecy says that God would bring the children of Israel from the north, the south, the east, the west... And he would gather them back together in their own land. Well, guess what? It happened after World War II when Israel came back together. How did it happen? Well, there was a yearning to return to Israel. Now, this is after World War II. It began to intensify in the Jewish hearts during the latter part of the 19th century. Um, Theodore Herzl was a Hungarian Jew who grew up attempting to to fit into European culture, Herzl grew to believe that anti-Semitism could not be defeated or cured, but uh, only avoided. And the only way to avoid it was the establishment of a Jewish state. So in June of 1895, he wrote in his diary, in Paris, I recognize the emptiness and futility of trying to combat anti-Semitism. Around that time, Herzl started writing these little pamphlets about a a Jewish state. And he claimed that these pamphlets resulted in the establishment of the Zionist movement. And they did play a a large role in the movement's rise and success. Well, Herzl spent the rest of his life visiting presidents and prime ministers urging the establishment of a Jewish state. Herzl predicted that within 50 years of Israel, or I'm sorry, within 50 years of his, um, of his death, that a Jewish state would be reborn. Well, he died in 1904, and the Jewish state of Israel was born in 1948. And today, he is revered as the father of the state of Israel. Well, prior to that, the Ottoman Empire had captured Jerusalem in 1516 A.D., and the, Ottoman, the Ottomans controlled um, the control of the, the Middle East continued until World War I. With the defeat of Turkey's Ottoman Empire in 1917, control of the Middle East shifted to Great Britain and France. So when the Holy Land came under the control of the British, influential Jews petitioned the British government 
to facilitate the establishment of a homeland for the Jews. On November 2, 1917, British Foreign Minister Arthur Balfour wrote to Lord Walter Rothschild, and he said, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. And this historical statement from the British government became known as the Balfour Declaration. Then you had the 1920 San Remo Conference, which the victor nations of World War I assigned the mandate for Palestine to the United Kingdom under Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. And the Allies also decided to make the UK responsible for putting it into effect and into the Balfour Declaration of 1917. And that action of the League of Nations enshrined the Balfour Declaration into international law. Man, I'm not going to have time to go through all of it, but it all leads up to, in 19, um, on May 14, 1948, is when Israel declared her independence. When the, when the Britons moved out of the mandate, the mandate was done. Israel de- declared her um, independence May 14, 1948. And now you, just yesterday, Israel celebrated 75 years of the independence, the Declaration of Independence for Israel, the modern-day nation of Israel. Seventy-five years. Folks, it's Ezekiel's prophecy. We're watching the ongoing fulfillment of that, the bones coming back together, this nation living again. Almighty God told Ezekiel, I will do this. This is not some grand design of some people, a collective group of people on the earth. Almighty God drew the Jews back to Israel and the modern-day nation of Israel is a sovereign day act of God, and it is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy almost 2,500 years ago. We're watching it right now, folks. And we celebrate the nation of Israel because, again, if you have a God consciousness and you know anything about this book called the Bible, you know that that's very prophetic and that God's eyes are on Israel. They always have been and they always will be. He did send them into exile, but he did not quit loving those people. And we love them today and celebrate their anniversary. 